Joshua chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 24. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here. And listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in full flood all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Araba, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. 
Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remaining standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben... Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle, in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant Law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal, on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is God's word. Well, that's a bit awkward, isn't it? I just had some baptisms and then we have a reading which is all about how God miraculously stops people from getting wet. Uh, But uh, as we look at this passage, we'll see that actually at the heart of it is something which will help us understand what happened here. To understand what it means to become a Christian. And even if you've been a Christian for for many, many years, uh, Joshua 3 and 4 has a unique message. A unique perspective about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And there are riches in this old story for today's followers of Jesus, that you do not want to miss out on. So let's pray for God's help, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the history that it records. And we thank you that in the true account of these things that happened, there are lessons for us today, that you by your spirit are speaking words that we need to hear if we are to trust in the Lord Jesus and to live lives marked by joy and confidence and hope as we await the return of our King and as we look forward to the coming of his kingdom. Amen. Well, let me explain how it is that this passage can have any relevance for for us today as we uh, try and work out what on earth is going on with the three normally dressed people getting into a pool in front of 200. I mean, when does that ever happen in normal life? Uh, As we try to understand that and as we uh, try to make sense of what it means to, to follow Jesus in the 21st century in London, what we need to do is we need to actually go back further 
before the time of Joshua, and we need to travel forward from the time of Joshua to afterwards. So if we go back before Joshua, we come to uh, one of the central promises of the Bible in Genesis 12, as God called a man named Abraham. And uh, we've been looking at this uh, quite regularly as we've uh, started to go through Joshua. And around 2000 BC, God plucked this pagan guy, Abraham, and he made some promises to him. Uh, We read in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There are four promises there. Uh, Four promises God makes to Abraham. Promise one, I will bless you. Promise two, I will make your descendants into a great nation. They'll outnumber the the sand on the seashore. Uh, Promise three, I will give them a land of their own, a promised land. All of which is very interesting, but it is kind of like uh, watching a very rich friend unwrap their Christmas presents. It's not all that exciting. Way Bully for you. How lovely. A brand new Range Rover and you're seven years old. Great. Lovely. What changes this is the fourth promise. The fourth promise is that I will make you a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The blessing that is given to Abraham and his descendants will flow through them to all peoples. In other words, our names are on the gift tag too. This is for us, these promises, not just for them. But that leads to another bunch of questions. Well, hang on, if, if the stuff we're reading about now in Joshua is for us, not just for them, uh, I mean, how, how can all people share in this blessing? I mean, are all the peoples of the world supposed to, to move to Canaan? I mean, it's going to be more crushed than a rush hour tube train, which in this heat would be a really pleasant place to be. I mean, it, that would just be ridiculous. How can it be that these promises for these people are actually for us as well? We've gone back from Joshua uh, 500 years before. Now we need to travel forward from Joshua 1,500 years to the time of Jesus. And what Jesus taught is that the, the historical events of the Old Testament are visual illustrations to help us understand what it is that he would do in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He taught that he was at the centre of the Bible and all the events of the Old Testament, they all focus in and point to him and shed light on what he would do. And so as the apostles uh, explain about Jesus to the world, they use, uh, they use these words. So Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, talks about the Israelites travelling out of Egypt through the desert and then under Joshua, crossing over the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages had come. In other words, the reality to which all this stuff in Joshua pointed is what's achieved by Jesus Christ. Those promises given to those people point to the real solid promises that are given to you and to me now in history. It's a sign, a symbol of the inheritance the greater Joshua, Jesus, would give to any who trust in him of life in his kingdom. So uh, to, to trust Joshua, to follow Joshua as the people do, means to follow Jesus, to trust in him, to enjoy forgiveness and new life through his death and resurrection, uh, 
And then one day, not to enter uh, one little sliver of land, but to enter the entire remade world, a cosmos that is in order, a cosmos where there is no death or disorder, but where there is life and pulsates with joy and laughter and adventure. That's what it means to, to enjoy these promises for us. It means to enjoy what Jesus achieves in his death and resurrection. And so uh, these chapters of history are basically visual aids to help you and me get our heads around what we get if we trust Jesus. And there's three things you get. Uh, they're the points really on the, um, on the outline. Uh, three things that we, we learn from these chapters to help us understand what it means to trust in Jesus. Christian faith, trust Jesus. Christian faith crosses over. And then from chapter four, Christian faith remembers. So firstly, Christian faith faith trusts Jesus. Uh, Turn back with me to Joshua and uh, we'll pick it up at the start of chapter 3 verse 1. Early in the morning Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, that's half a mile, between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went on ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests when they carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. So the Israelites, um, there's a map that we should be able to pull up. Um, they're camped just over on the east side of the Jordan. Um, you can see there's a just the north end of the Dead Sea, Abel Shittim, where they are. Uh, and then to the left across there is Jericho. So they're, they're camped just by that arrow, about two-thirds of the way down. And the spies have come back from chapter 2 with great news. Far from laughing at this ragtag slave nation in their fortified cities. The Canaanites are absolutely petrified. They're terrified because they've heard that the Lord God, the real God, is going to give the nation, uh, the land of Canaan to the nation of Israel. There is just one problem for the Israelites though. Between them on the east and Canaan on the west is the Jordan River and there are no bridges. Now, 40 years ago, uh, God had led them through the Red Sea. He'd split the Red Sea for them to walk through. But that was 40 years ago. So verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during the harvest. In other words, this is not a shallow, babbling brook that they were just able to wade across. 
The Jordan would have been probably twice the depth and at least twice the width of, as usual. It would have been well above its banks. And given that it descends nine foot a mile between uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, it would have been an absolute raging torrent. And you can imagine the tension. There's a, the whole camp, probably more than two million people. They've all uh, packed their stuff and they're, and they're now moving, heading west. And ahead of them, half a mile in front, uh, are the, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And with every step they get closer, they can hear the roar of the river getting louder and louder and louder. Now, do you notice how God is described again and again in this uh, passage? Uh, Verse 13, uh, the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. They learned 40 years ago that he's not just the God of Israel. Uh, Their parents had seen God uh, split the Red Sea in half. They'd heard the stories again and again around the campfire in the desert of how God had split the sea. But it takes a whole lot less faith to believe that God did some amazing things back then than it does to believe that I can trust God when he's promised to do an amazing thing today. And then the priests get right to the river's edge. And the first priest, his sandals touch the water at the edge of the Jordan. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap, a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, that's the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now, how God did it really doesn't matter. The point is God, the God of all the earth, did it. And the the important thing is not the mechanics of what God did. It's the reason, the lesson that they are to learn from it. And and as we look back from this side of, uh, of the cross, the lesson that we are to learn from this is that Christian faith trusts in Jesus. Which is an odd thing to say because Jesus wasn't mentioned anywhere in the reading and he doesn't appear anywhere in that story. But how that can be the case uh, makes more sense when you think about what the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, The Ark of the Covenant is basically, it was a box, it it was a tiny bit bigger than this and it looked a bit like this, covered in gold. So it's not, in one sense, not a hugely impressive thing. Inside this gold-covered box was... Uh, the, uh, the two tablets of the law, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them, and then Moses, Aaron's staff that had budded, and a jar of manna. But what the ark represents is the key here. It's not so much a box as a throne. It is God's throne. So God says in, in Exodus twenty five twenty two, There I will meet you on the ark of the covenant. I will speak. I will rule my people. From there, this is God's throne. In other words, the ark is the presence of God symbolically. I mean, he's the God of the whole earth. You can't squeeze him into a box. But he says, symbolically, this is like my throne. This is where I will, I will intensely make myself present for your blessing. 
And so the people have been taught again and again, look to God for your strength, your provision, your protection, your help, your security, and your hope. And here, that lesson is drilled into them visually. The reason I think that the, uh, the ark has to go um, 2,000 cubits, over half a mile in front of them, is not for safety because of the holiness of God, because he's been much closer than that in the camp. They're not, they're not half a mile away from him in the, in the camp. I think the reason is so that most of them can see it. As half a mile ahead, this vast two million people, as they spread out, they can see that what splits the river is the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. As each Israelite walks down into the riverbed on dry ground, they see there it is the Ark in the middle of the river. Uh, This actually ties in with uh, verse 7 too. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And this is what happened. So you turn over to 4.14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life just as they had with Moses. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, it is no coincidence that Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. God wants the people to venerate Joshua as his leader, as his representative with the people, as the one through whom God will speak and as the one through whom God will do amazing things. And the point is that uh, Joshua is a representative of Jesus. See, the heart of of Christianity is trusting in Jesus And Jesus is not just the symbolic uh, presence of God in some box, some gold box. He is God himself in human flesh. And Jesus is not just like Joshua, one who would speak on behalf of God, bring the words of God to the people. He is the word of God made flesh. God himself come to lead and save his people is Jesus. And that's what Joshua models for them. And so what the Israelites are doing here is they, as they follow Joshua, trusting in him, and as they see the Ark of the Covenant uh, bring them safely across the river, they are learning to look to God and trust in him. And as Christians, we see the fulfillment of that as we look to Jesus. As we look to Jesus, not to bring us across the Jordan River into Canaan, but as we look to Jesus to bring us into the kingdom of God, to bring us forgiveness and new life in Christ. And it is only by looking to Jesus that we can move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I got to live in America for five years. It was fantastic. Um, my dad got a job. He was um, the, basically the government liaison between Britain and America for science, technology, and energy. Fantastic job. And it meant we got to live in the States for five years. Now, let me tell you what didn't happen. Uh, the British government did not interview me to find out whether my understanding of uh, science uh, was decent, relevant enough that I could, I could represent the interests of the great British people in scientific endeavours in America. I could barely turn on a Bunsen burner without blowing up a lab. And it was well beyond me. And they did not interview me to find out whether my diplomatic skills would be sufficient to enable me to negotiate the paths of uh, international relations. I was a teenage boy. That's enough for you to know about diplomacy. There is no teenage boy in this world with skills in diplomacy. Now, the, the thing was, my dad was really good at this stuff. And so no matter what his children were like, he got the job and we got to enjoy the, the blessings of five years in the States and had a fantastic time because of him. 
It was nothing to do with my abilities, nothing to do with my hard work, all down to him. And Christianity is not a set of rules that God gives us, as if, uh, as if he says, look, if you do this stuff well enough, then you will get my blessings. Christianity is, uh, is no more a set of rules that we, we keep and earn our way into God's eternal blessings than, uh, than God saying to the, to the Israelites, look, what I want you to do is this raging river churning forward in full flood, and I just want you to try really hard and walk through it. They've just been washed away. They've all ended up as fish food further downstream. Christianity is not about us achieving stuff by our strength. They needed a miracle if they were going to get across the Jordan. And you and I need a miracle if we're ever going to get into God's eternal kingdom. They got one and so did we. We get the miracle of God becoming Jesus Christ. We get the miracle of him living the perfect life you and I could never live, loving people and obeying God perfectly and earning God's inheritance. We get the miracle of him dying on a cross to pay for our sins, our failure to, to, to obey and love God and to love other people more than we love ourselves. We get the miracle of him defeating death, rising from the grave three days later so that we could have eternal life. We get all of that, not because we've earned it, we've worked for it, we deserve it, but because Jesus did it. He is the presence of God who leads us safely into the kingdom of God. And so Christian faith doesn't work out how to build a bridge, doesn't work out how to swim really hard. Christian faith trusts Jesus and and Christian faith crosses over. Trust Jesus. And secondly, it crosses over having trusted him. This is what he achieves for us. Uh, If you look with me at um, chapter 3 verses 10 to 11, we're just focusing on these verses for a moment. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And then turn over to chapter 4, verse 10. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. It's probably almost too obvious to state but the people start this passage on one side of the Jordan and they finish the passage on the other side of the Jordan. They start in the wilderness, the desert. They end in the promised land. Everything changes here. And as the Israelites approached the river, it would have been obvious to them that there was a great barrier between them and the promised land. There was a great barrier between the Israelites and getting into all God had promised them, his inheritance, his blessing. And they couldn't just sort of drift their way into the promised land. Uh, there was um, an extraordinary uh, legal case in Austria a couple of weeks ago. A businessman um, had let a neighbour mow his lawn. Every time the neighbour mowed his lawn, he said, do you want me to mow your lawn as well? He said, yeah, fine, that'd be great. And it, this went on for years. And then there was a boundary dispute between them. And the judge ruled, look, he's mowed the lawn for 15 years. It's his, which is absolutely... 
When you think about it, though, that's pretty good. That is a great way to get on the property ladder in London because it's a lot cheaper to buy a lawnmower than to save up for a flat deposit. Yeah? Everybody's off to B&Q after the service. But they couldn't, they couldn't sort of take over the promised land by just sort of mowing a bit of lawn or by subtly shifting the boundary posts a couple of yards west each year and waiting 13 years for adverse possession. It doesn't work like that. There's a, there's a huge, great torrential river in the way. They've got to get past that before they can get in. And as they looked back, having crossed over the river, and saw the, the, the water surging and flowing in full flood again, it would have been very obvious to them that something had radically changed. They were now in a different place, and there was no going back. They had uh, to switch the rivers, cross the Rubicon. There's no turning back. And there is nothing accidental about this imagery in Joshua 3. See, the essence of Christianity is a dramatic, total change. So again, the the Apostle Paul writes in another of his letters, Colossians chapter 1. For he, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, transferred us, crossed us over into the kingdom of the son he loves. The New Testament talks about us going from being guilty to being righteous in God's eyes, from being filthy to being clean. It talks about us going from being God's enemies, alienated from him, to being his children, adopted by him and loved by him. It talks of us going most radically of being spiritually utterly dead to being eternally alive with Jesus Christ. Actually, the the imagery of baptism helps us with this because baptism is is not just, as we we read, it's not just being washed that it symbolizes, our sins being washed away. It's also symbolizing death and new life. You go down into the water like going down into the grave. When I do baptisms, I like to hold people under just for a few seconds, you know, just to just to reinforce the imagery, and then you come up to new life. It's a it's a powerful image. We've just seen it right in front of us. It's a dramatic crossing over from death to life, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and to the blessings of His eternal paradise. Um, President Obama uh, recently, he's, he's on the kind of, it's the end of his presidency, uh, running around legacy building time. And uh, so he's charging all over the globe. And he's been to Cuba, which is the first time a U.S. president has been there for generations. And uh, it looks like they've basically managed to mend the relationships with Cuba, which is an uh, extraordinary achievement. That means Americans will get to enjoy Cuban cigars for the first time in almost 50 years. So there's, there's great excitement in America about what's been achieved there. But um, in the past, things have been a right mess between America and Cuba. And um, the truth is that Cuba's not been a particularly... Uh, great example for communism and so every year thousands of people to escape um, either political oppression or poverty uh, get into little boats much as we're seeing in the Mediterranean at the moment to get to Florida now the U.S. Coast Guard has a thing called the uh, the wet feet dry feet rule the wet feet dry feet rule which determines what happens when people try to cross over uh, to Florida if they get stopped in their boats uh, during the crossing then under maritime law, they're turned around and taken back to the way they came. And they're dropped back in Cuba. Wet feet. If they're found effectively with wet feet, as, it's, as the saying goes, they're taken back. However, if they manage to get a foot onto the soil of the US, 
then they're legally deemed to have crossed over and they have the right to remain. They may not speak a word of English. They may not know the Pledge of Allegiance. They may not know anything about American culture. They may not even have heard of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. They have a right to become American citizens. They have crossed over and everything is now different. Now, the same thing has happened if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Our experience of, uh, if, you've, if you are a Christian, experience for most of us is a sort of process. You read the, the stories of, of Jay and Andy and Amanda, and, and it's a kind of messy process. Uh, do I trust God and uh, drifting away? And, and it feels like it's something that happens gradually by degrees. And it's not like Christians look any different. It's not like you become a Christian and you change. You don't get a medieval halo. Which is why you need passages like Joshua 3. They help us see that when you put your trust in Jesus, you become definitively, dramatically, completely different. You go from dead to alive. It doesn't matter that you don't yet speak the Christian lingo. It doesn't matter that you uh, don't understand an awful lot of the theological terms. It doesn't matter that you, you haven't yet worked out what it means to live as a Christian and there's huge areas of your life that still need to change. Like a Cuban who makes it to the US soil, if you put your trust in Jesus, you have gone from death to life. You have definitively crossed over. And the rest is just details, to be honest. And what is true spiritually now will be true physically one day. When we die, we will cross over into God's physical eternal kingdom, which is why uh, the River of Jordan in, um, in so many Christian books and hymns is a picture of death. That barrier we cross over finally to join God in heaven. But to become a Christian, Joshua 3 to 4 reminds us, is to cross over to be changed, and there is no turning back. Well, finally, uh, uh, chapter 4, Christian faith remembers. Uh, When you step back, it is pretty odd that chapter 4, basically, which is about setting up a bunch of rocks, no more impressive than the sort of cans you find when you're walking in the mountains to show you the path, gets as much airtime as the miraculous stopping of a river in full flood. It is odd when you think about it, but there is a reason. Uh, Let's just remind ourselves what they did before looking at Joshua's explanation. So chapter 4, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. And then we'll pick it up again in verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. Actually, that's a beautiful little detail. The day that their rescue began from Egypt, the day they killed the Passover lambs, was the tenth day of the first month. It's a beautiful uh, little reminder, really, that God has been in charge. God is in control. God is doing exactly what he wants And God will make sure he gets his people safely home. Uh, Verse 20. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they'd taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he'd done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we'd crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful. So you might always fear the Lord your God. There is a very good reason that they build the monument. And that is that this is a one-off event. God does not tell the Israelites, uh, every new generation uh, should go across the, the Jordan in boats and then every new generation will have the Jordan split before them and they get their Jordan crossing experience. He does it for this generation and then he tells this generation to build a memorial and to explain it to the successive generations so that, verse 24, they, the successive generations, will fear the Lord. That they might obey and worship him. They don't need to experience it themselves. They just need reliable witnesses to tell them what happened. And it's the same for us. God sent Jesus at a specific time to a specific place in history. And Jesus died at one place just outside Jerusalem and yet his death is enough for the sins of the world. And Jesus rose again at one place in a garden just outside Jerusalem and yet that resurrection is enough to bring eternal life for the peoples of all the world. And that is why God gave us this book. Because what we need is not for us to have our own successive miracles. It is for us to have reliable witnesses tell us what he has done in the past. That's why we have the, the ceremonies of, of, or the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to help us remember what happened, what God did. We don't need to see Jesus rise in front of us. We do need to have solid, reliable evidence to believe that he did so. And we need to be reminded of it. You see, what Joshua is doing here is very important because forgetfulness is the great enemy of faith. Forgetfulness is the great enemy of faith and it is what will do for the Israelites in successive generations. It's one of the reasons Christians need to come to church each week because we forget. Imagine a husband and wife, been married 10 years, uh, football's on, European championships about to start and she turns off the TV, gets his attention and uh, says, I, I, and he said, what's the matter and how quickly can we deal with this? Uh, and, uh, and she says, I don't think you love me anymore. He says, why not? I don't remember the last time you told me I love you. He says, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. Nothing's changed since then. That's 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, we, need, we need remind. You'd think the guy's insane. He's not going to get to watch much football if the conversation goes like that. The, the guy's absolutely mad. None of us could go 10 years without having something like that reaffirmed. And as Christians, we need to be reminded regularly of what God has done for us because we start to doubt. We need reminding that God loves us because often the circumstances of our life will be painful and disappointing. We need to be reminded that Jesus' death fully pays for our sins, past, present and future, because we'll sin daily. And it'll be hard to believe that God could forgive someone who mucks up as often as I do. And so we need reminding. We need reminding that God's Holy Spirit lives in us and that we share in his eternal life because frankly, most of us look so ordinary and we find following Jesus so hard that unless we're continually reminded, we'll stop believing it. 
As Christians, we need reminding that we've crossed over. For those of us who would call ourselves Christians, look at these baptisms and be reminded. Listen to the words of Joshua 3 to 4 and be reminded. If you trust in Jesus, you have crossed over. There is no turning back, you three. You have, your old life has been buried in that pool in baptism and you have a new life with Christ. And this, uh, these chapters also rem- remind us, remember where you live now. We live, if we're Christians, west of the Jordan, in God's promised land. We can't go back east to our old lives. Don't set your hearts on things east of the Jordan, things of this world. Don't set your hopes on things that won't last. Don't spend all your energy, your money, uh, your desires, your longing, seeking after good things of this world that will not endure for eternity. Marriage, children, getting to the top of your career, getting a house, doing it up, going to see amazing places around the world. They're all really good things, but they will not last. They're not ultimate. And even if you get all of those, that won't make for a life well lived. It is only living for God that can give you a life well lived. It is only living for him that will give you a legacy that lasts for eternity spiritually, you've crossed over. So live like it. Live by God's standards, no matter what the world says. Uh, Give to lay up treasure where you'll have it for all eternity. And speak to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation they can have through him. These baptisms in Joshua 3 to 4 are a reminder to us. Our life is west of the Jordan. But finally, let me just say that to enjoy all that God has promised, all of his blessings, uh, the people don't just watch the Ark of the Covenant cross over the Jordan. They don't just watch the river stop flowing. They follow and they cross over. And we've watched three people cross over tonight. But God's kingdom is for everyone. He's called again and again in this passage, the, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, of all the earth. So if you've not done so already, why not cross over? Why not put your trust in Jesus and cross over from being alienated, cut off from God, to being adopted in his family, to, from being outside his kingdom to being inside his kingdom, from being guilty in sin to being forgiven, from being spiritually dead to being alive with Jesus Christ. The promise of God is this. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the picture we have at the Jordan River and the picture that we have of baptism. We thank you that if we, uh, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we will have all that you have promised. We thank you that if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we have crossed over. No matter how much we doubt it and struggle to, to feel it, we are new. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remind one another and to remember all that you have done and to enjoy our lives in your kingdom. Amen.